Good evening, and welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, cultural, and political issues here in New York City. You were just listening to Consabor Latino with Marisol. Thanks again for tuning in today to WBAI. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I'd like to thank our loyal WBAI listeners for tuning in this evening, for sticking with WBAI. A lot in the news this weekend. I was religiously following CNN's coverage of the uh, New Hampshire primary, uh, which happens uh, this early this week. And then so when I'm back on Thursday on Driving Forces, we're going to take a look at the results of that because of all the Michigas that took place in Iowa last week. A few other updates in the news today. Coronavirus, which I reported on on this show a little earlier where I had uh, New York City Council member Margaret Chin talking about the impact on Chinatown, while well, the coronavirus, now more than 800 people have died in China. That makes this epidemic worse than the SARS epidemic that took place in 2002, 2003. The number of confirmed infections, according to reports, has risen above 37,000. It's now close to about 37,200. There have been 89 deaths and over 2,600 new cases were recently recorded. And what happened over the weekend reports that a U.S. citizen has died from the virus in Wuhan. That's the province capital. For context, SARS killed 774 people. That's why that 800 number is now getting a lot of attention because the coronavirus death rate is now higher than what took place with SARS. Also, here in New York City, uh, if you were paying attention to the news this weekend, we had a... Uh, Two incidents involving cops who were shot at point-blank range. Our Celeste Casts Marston in just a little while is going to be able to give us a report with some of the updates on what has taken place. But when you went to sleep last night, <clears throat> excuse me, when you went to sleep last night, you were probably hearing about the one incident in which two officers had been fired on. Then again, another incident this morning. Celeste is going to give us an update on that as well. Joining me today, I've got a few different topics we're going to talk about. One is we're going to have Eduardo Castell, managing partner of the Miram Group. He's going to discuss the upcoming mayoral race, Mike Bloomberg's running, and the issues that Eddie sees dominating many of these races. Because remember, the 2021 races here in New York City are expected to generate possibly more than 500 candidates, mostly for the New York City Council seats. A majority of our 51 council members are term limited out. So we're going to ask Eddie a little about that and also what he kind of envisions is going to happen in New Hampshire this week. We're also going to talk then with Stephanie Nilva. She's executive director of Day One. She'll discuss teen dating violence awareness because uh, this is something that many people might not be thinking about. And so we're going to talk to her about the origins of the nonprofit Day One and what some of the solutions are. And then just a short while ago, I was in touch with John Cho. I don't know if uh, you've worked with him before, but he is the executive director of the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce. And I wanted to talk to him a little about the impact here in New York City of the coronavirus. What's the impact on business? Because I've been reading reports that people are not patronizing a number of the businesses in Chinatown or in Flushing and near where I live over in Elmhurst because of concerns about the coronavirus, even if we have not had reported cases in those areas. So we're going to talk with John near the end of the show. And if there's time, we'll definitely be able to take uh, some of your calls. I do want to thank you for tuning in to WBAI. 
uh, you, you, I know your value. You tune in because you want to listen to non-commercial, non-corporate, progressive community radio. I want to thank you for tuning in t- tonight, but also to my other show, Driving Forces on Thursdays, and also to Marisol, or you're calling, uh, you're listening to Paul deliver the news or the morning coverage or Leonard Lopate. You know, it's, you get a diversity of programming here of non-corporate, non-commercial, uh, shows. And if you're new to WBAI, I invite you to go to our website at WBAI.org. Check out the diversity of programming here. I'm a relative newcomer. I've been here. I'm soon going to hit my two-year anniversary on air, but I was a listener before that. I'm what is known as a BAI buddy. I know if you're sitting at home, you might have heard other hosts talk about this as well. I'm preaching it because I see a value in being a BAI buddy because I give a sustaining contribution of 10, 20 I think I'm giving $20 now a month. It comes right off of my credit card, and it helps keep this programming on the air. And that's why it's incredibly important. When we were bumped off, bumped off, it's a a nicer word. When we were taken off the air for a month late last year, we were right in the beginning stage of our fundraising, and we lost a lot of revenue when that took place. We're grateful that we had a lot of people stand up and say, we want our local programming back here on WBAI.org. And because of that bump in the road, we want to now make a concerted effort to bring in more BAI buddies. And that's why I'm just asking you, if you have been a listener, if you want to show your loyalty, it would be amazing if you could just become a BAI buddy. The pledge number is 516-620-3602. You could also go online to give to wbai.org. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Or you can donate online. Very easy to do at give to, that's the number two, wbai.org. So at the top of the show, I mentioned that there's a lot of news that's going on and that I didn't want to kind of upstage Celeste's report because she has been checking out everything that's been going on today. So let's right now bring you the latest news from our Celeste's Katz Marston. Thanks, Jeff. The coronavirus has killed more than 800 people, with more than 37,000 infected worldwide as of Sunday, according to reports. The outbreak, which has been traced to an origin point in China, is now held responsible for more deaths than the outbreak of SARS in 2002 and 2003. As the Washington Post has noted, the novel coronavirus is more contagious than SARS, but people infected with the new virus are less likely to die from it. A team from the World Health Organization is headed to China early this week to investigate the spread of the virus. The focus remains on Wuhan, where authorities have ordered strict quarantines. Officials in Beijing have announced that lying about exposure to coronavirus patients may be punishable by death. In national news, presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders says he's not immediately releasing more medical records, despite the Vermont senator's past promises to do so before the first votes of the Democratic primary cycle. Sanders, who suffered a heart attack last October, said on Meet the Press Sunday he's released as much medical information as other candidates. He insists he's in good health and doesn't want to go down a slippery slope of putting out more details in the wake of his coronary. Here he is speaking to NBC's Chuck Todd. You can start releasing medical records and never ends. We have released a substantive part of all of our medical records. We have doctors who have cardiologists who are confirming that I am in good health. I am in good health. What changes have you, did the doctors ask you to make that you've made? 
I am trying to walk a little bit more, but the <laughs> schedule doesn't allow me. They didn't say, they did. <laughs> so I'm trying to sleep a little bit better. Sometimes that's hard, but I'm feeling great. Thanks. My guess is winning will help you sleep a little bit better. Winning will make me sleep a lot better, and I think we're going to do just that. Sanders finished last week's Iowa caucus in a virtual tie with South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. After the meltdown with reporting results in Iowa, in part thanks to a new app used to submit precinct information, several campaigns challenged the numbers. Updated results are expected shortly before New Hampshire voters go to the polls in their first-in-the-nation primary on Tuesday. Republican President Donald Trump spent some time on Twitter the weekend after his acquittal by the Senate on House impeachment charges. Among his targets were fellow Republican Mitt Romney. Romney, a senator from Utah, was the only GOP member of the chamber to vote to convict Trump for abusing his power by asking Ukraine to investigate political rival Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. Trump also repeatedly retweeted a video depicting a heckler taunting New York Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, a House manager of the impeachment. Separately, the Trump administration is set for a showdown with the president's former home state of New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo and State Attorney General Letitia James, both Democrats, said New York will file suit against the administration for banning residents from applying for global entry and other trusted traveler programs that make it easier to cross borders. The federal government instituted the ban in retaliation for New York's Green Light Law, which lets undocumented immigrants apply for driver's license and prevent immigration authorities from accessing DMV records. At a news conference, Cuomo chewed out the feds for what he called extortion. Extortion is wrong. Abuse of power is wrong. It was wrong in Ukraine, and it's wrong here. And we're going to sue the federal government. We're going to disclose this political intrusion into government, this ham-handed political tactic that once again hurts New Yorkers to make their political point. Cuomo signed the green light law into effect last year. And in local news, two NYPD officers are expected to survive after being shot in two separate incidents in the Bronx about 12 hours apart. On Sunday morning, police say the suspect, identified as Robert Williams, opened fire on uniformed officers and a civilian worker at the 41st Precinct on Longwood Avenue. One lieutenant was hit in the arm. NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea said the same man is believed to have fired on two officers in a marked police van parked on Simpson Street on Saturday evening, hitting the officer in the driver's seat in the face and neck. Standing alongside Mayor Bill de Blasio at a news conference, Shea said attacks on cops should be roundly condemned and that anti-police rhetoric and demonstrations send a dangerous message. This is a premeditated assassination attempt, and I said it last night. But just remember, these things are not unrelated. We had people marching through the streets of New York City recently. It brings me immediately back to 2014, where we had the same thing right before Ramos and Lou. We had people marching in New York City last week, and I condemned it, and I condemn it right here again today, using profanities against the police department. Everyone should be speaking out against this. And you have to be careful about the words you use, whether it's on social media or in written papers or speaking, because words matter and words affect people's behavior. And here we have New York City police officers twice in 12 hours targeted. And again, by the grace of God that we're not planning a funeral. WBAI is supported entirely by listeners like you. 
Go to give2wbai.org to support free speech community radio. Give2, that's the number 2, wbai.org. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thanks, Celeste. I'm so happy that you are still part of the show. It's been wonderful. I want to get to our first guest tonight, Eduardo Castell, managing partner at the Miram Group. Eddie Castell brings over 25 years of experience as a strategic consultant, government executive, nonprofit leader, and campaign professional, one of New York City's leading political strategists and government relations professionals. He joined the Merrim Group as partner in 2010 and uh, two, three years ago was appointed managing partner in December 2017. I invited him on to talk a little about the upcoming 2021 races and what we are going to see here in New York City. Welcome to City Watch, Eddie. Thank you, Jeff. Always the pleasure to be on WBAI and certainly always a pleasure to speak to you. So let's get right to it. Your assessment of the mayor's race. We had a big development just within the last few weeks when Ruben Diaz Jr. announced that he was not going to be seeking the seat. Talk a little about who the ones are to watch and where you think this race is going to go. Um, that's a great question, Jeff. I think um, certainly want to um, make some comment on, on Ruben Diaz. I think a lot of folks were caught by surprise, not only by him saying that he wasn't running for mayor, but more importantly saying that he was walking away from politics altogether. Um, and I think that uh, that's a very tough decision to make, a very personal decision. Um, he was returning um, money, so it wasn't like, I'm not running now and I'm going to step away, but keep my options open. Um, returning all the money that he had raised in the last couple of years in preparation for this mayor's race. So I certainly want to salute him for his service, both to uh, the people in his in the Bronx and to the state of New York, because he's been a great public servant. But it does certainly change the race. Um, for one, um, the uh, there is no Latino candidate as of now running the Latino vote, which is, uh, you know, could be easily 20 percent or more of the electorate. Um, is in a sense up for grabs, um, and that's a very uh, a, a big dynamic and a big change in the race. Um, and and I think that that will certainly shape, starts to shape and color how we see candidates now uh, going beyond their own base and trying to appeal to Latino voters. Um, and I think you're going to start to see that that happening immediately. They are, obviously everyone's appealing to all sectors. But you always target and strategically try to 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 build your base and 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 reach out to certain constituencies that may um, may may appeal you may appeal to in order to be able to win. And now you have, I would say, a free for all for the Latino vote. And there are other names that keep surfacing. Some have, I believe Sean Donovan recently did say that he was going to run, but Scott Stringer hasn't officially announced, right? Eric Adams has not officially announced, but these are the names that keep coming up. Are these going to be some of the three of the top contenders? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think uh, Stringer, I, Stringer, by all indications, is is clearly looking to run. He's term limited out. Uh, he has been... Uh, in both in the assembly was Manhattan borough president, now controller for is will be finishing his second term as controller. I absolutely believe he will be running, and I believe um, the borough president of Brooklyn, Eric Adams, will be running as well. Um, I think so. Those are two names that you, for sure I think will be in it. And then, as you mentioned, Sean Donovan uh, jumped into the race recently. 
a bit of a surprise, uh, has never run for office before, um, has not held office, although he's obviously uh, very you know, qualified, having both worked in the Bloomberg administration and in the Barack Obama administration. But I think um, so he brings certainly a level of government expertise um, and was very successful in his roles in those positions, but obviously a lot harder politically since he's never run for office, the voters don't know him. So that'll be his challenge. And I, I skipped over one other name who's uh, been, I've been wound up on his mailing list where it says he is, cons- I believe, considering running for mayor. He hasn't officially said he's running for mayor, which is the New York City Council Speaker, Corey Johnson, as well. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I agree, the, the name has certainly been circulated. Um, I believe, you know, again, he will be term limited as a city council person and his speaker now. And, and it is rare for a council speaker not to want to cross the hall um, and get the promotion <laughs> and basically be running be running uh, City Hall from the other side. So I think that's a very likely scenario as well. And as you say that, I reflect on Christine Quinn uh, seeking to become mayor. But this time we don't have... We have several, I believe there's three uh, women candidates, Laurie Sutton, Diane Morales are two of the names I could think of, but we're not seeing a prominent, you know, a woman in a prominent position right now in elective office in the city or beyond, uh, you know, say, or beyond, of course, doesn't have to be in the city, uh, that they want to become married. Are you surprised you're not seeing more women toss their hat in the ring? It, it, it's certainly disappointing um, when we're at you know, this stage, um, you'd, you'd hope, uh, and there are certainly qualified and talented women who can lead this city. So you'd hope for there to be uh, women, more women, um, um, as you said, uh, with some, with a bit more name recognition, um, who could be running. It, it is disappointing to see, as well as it is, quite honestly, as I just said, for the fact that uh, there isn't a Latino who's going to be running for mayor, at least as of now. In a city as diverse as New York, I think those are – and again, it could change, but at this point it certainly would be disappointing that there isn't a Latino or a woman running. But that may very well be the case. So how much will Trump's reelection impact uh, – I'm not saying he's going to win, but if he wins right. a second term, how will that impact the mayor's race here? I was going to say, what do you, do you have a crystal ball, Jack? What are you doing? <laughs> no, I think it's a really great question. I actually think that the most important X factor for the mayor's race in 2021 is what happens in the presidential race in 2020. Uh, I believe you, we have a dynamic right now um, where there's a sort of an anger. I call it the angry electorate. Um, uh, but you saw it play out a little bit in 2018 in New York politics after Trump had gotten elected um, and had been in office for a year and a half. In 2018, um, you had more progressive voters. It was an angry vote. They they were looking to to vilify someone. They took it out, quite honestly, on the IDC, Independent Democratic Conference, that had been in Albany. And just the fact that somebody had labeled them Trump uh, Democrats uh, made it very difficult for them to uh, get reelected um, when obviously their politics voting for democratic issues and in some cases very progressive issues um, that got lost by the wayside. And I think you saw that. And I think that's the outgrowth of Trump and his politics. And as I said, the frustration and anger, I believe it's even worse now. If 
Trump gets reelected, I believe you will see that play out. I believe that voters will be looking, particularly in a Democratic primary, um, which will happen first in, in choosing the Democratic nominee for mayor. I believe it will be a very angry electorate. They will be looking for somebody who's going to be very progressive, who is going to be, I would say, almost uh, feed that angry electorate. Uh, I think if if Trump gets defeated and a Democrat is elected president, it lets a little bit of the air out of the balloon. And I believe we will see a race in 2021 that more tradition as, as is more traditional will be a reflection of uh, the current administration and how people compare to that administration. Are they going to be continuing some of those policies? Are they going to be uh, changing some of those policies, the mayoral style? Um, so I think that that's a, it'll have a huge impact on 2021, both in terms of who would run, what the electorate is looking for, and what the race will be about. And so we've, you know, I've been focusing on the mayor's race with this uh, line of questioning, but there are so many other races that are going to be happening. The borough presidents and the majority of the city council seats are also going to be up. What are the races that you're going to be looking at? And what are also, the, it's kind of a two-part question, what are the races you're going to keep an eye on? And what are some of the trends you expect to emerge in a number of these races? Well, there are, um, you're right, it's going to be an unbelievable year as far as city government really turning over. Um, and um, we've had it in the past, um, in some term, when term limits kick in, you have a lot of both citywide borough president and city council like this. But, you know, 2021 will be significant, I believe, as you said, like over 36 uh, council races, so about two-thirds of the council will open up as well as, um, at, at this point, uh, at least four of the borough president races and all the citywide races with, uh, will be up. So I think you have, um, it, it will be an incredible year of politics um, and, and races. And I think some of the trends um, that you'll see will, will be reflected in what I just said in the presidential race. I think it'll play out as well. I think with the new public uh, finance system that the city put in place an eight to one match. I believe that what you're seeing is there'll be many more candidates because it's going to uh, allow small dollar fundraising to be able to compete. So, um, particularly say for citywide electeds in the borough president races, I think you're going to see more folks who, and I think we're seeing it already, who may not have thrown their hat into a ring who are going to try to. Because typically you need to, or in the past, you need to have some access to large institutional money, and that becomes less important. So I think you have a more democratic with a small D field for a lot of the races. I think that's one of the trends. And I do, I think one of the things to watch is does the progressive tilt that we've seen both nationally and locally, does that continue into 2021? I believe at this point it still does. Or is there anything happening in the city or nationally that creates a pause where um, voters think maybe we're going too far and they try to to sort of, um, you know, create some more equilibrium and, and, and bring it back to some balance? I don't see that yet. Again, that could change with the election of, of, uh, of a Democrat instead of Trump. Um, and I think some races to watch, I would say one right now is. Uh, there's a special election going on right now um, in Queens to replace Melinda Katz as the borough president. 
whoever wins that race is going to have to run for re-election right away. Um, so that's an interesting race because you're going to be incumbent for a little while, but you're going to be turning around and running. I think that's an interesting race to watch. I think Councilman Donovan Richards, um, who hails from Southeast Queens, um, has gotten a lot of momentum. It's a special election, so not a lot of voters turn out. Uh, he has institutional support from labor and others. Um, I think the African-American base in Southeast Queens is such a potent voting. If they come out and vote, um, he should do very well. So I think that's an interesting race to watch. But again, he could win and then be challenged soon afterwards again. So people will have a second bite at that. And I think the other race um, to watch is uh, that I'm looking at as Manhattan Borough President. Um, again, not the full field isn't uh, out there yet. But it seems Mark Levine, who's a councilman from northern Manhattan, has announced that he's running for borough president for Manhattan 2021. And he's been a very successful councilman uh, with a great appeal among a lot of his colleagues in the council and elsewhere. I think he has an ability to raise some money. Uh, He has been on point on a lot of the issues, and it'll be interesting to see him sort of – he announced early. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how other folks try to – either announce to keep up with him um, or whether they'll wait, sit back and wait a bit longer. So those are two other races beyond the mayoral um, that um, that we'll be watching moving as we move into 20, late 20 and 2021. And the other fact just I want to mention, Jeff, is the Democratic primary was moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, the primaries in New York City were moved from September to June. And so what you have is in June of 2021, you will have the Democratic nominees chosen for all of these races. As you know, in New York, being the Democratic nominee in a number of places means being the, uh, um, uh, 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 you know, the elected official almost, right? Yeah. So you're going to see politicking for these 2021 races start immediately after the presidential I think there'll be too much focus on the presidential to start beforehand. I mean, it's starting now below the surface, but it'll it'll really go into fifth gear right after the presidential. People won't wait till 2021 because it just isn't the time. And you'll start election. You'll see electioneering happening in November of 2020. So we've got just about 30 seconds left. I did want to throw one question about national politics out at you. Uh, Any hopes, expectations for what you want to see happen in uh, or what you expect could happen in New Hampshire this week? Well, I think the most important thing about New Hampshire is that you need to have uh, Uh, an election that goes off without any hitches. I think the biggest loser in Iowa was the Democratic Party. And if Democrats want to capture the energy that they need in order to defeat an incumbent president, they really have to have their act together in all of these states and certainly in more important swing states. And it really in Iowa got off on the wrong foot. I think it was very frustrating. I mean, this was the the actual official kickoff of the presidential election was the first primary or the caucus in Iowa. And uh, the Democrats looked to not have their act together. And that is very, very ominous. I think what you need to see is a robust, successful New Hampshire primary um, to get. And this is less about any particular candidate and more about the Democrats looking like they're ready to take on an incumbent president. 
So, Eduardo Castell, how can people learn more about you and the work that you do? Well, thank you. Well, they can go on to moramgroup.com, M-I-R-R-A-M-G-R-O-U-P, all one word, moramgroup.com, and learn about us and uh, the firm that we've been involved in over 20 years doing uh, government relations and public affairs and working with a lot of both not-for-profits and industry trade groups in New York. Eduardo Castell, Managing Partner at the Moram Group, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI tonight. Always a pleasure, Jeff, and as I said, always a pleasure to be to be on WBAI. Thank you. So we're going to go right to our next desk because later this week, Valentine's Day. And with Valentine's Day approaching, symbols of love and relationships are everywhere. But for too many, especially young people, relationships can be filled with violence. And February is what's called Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. So I've invited Stephanie Nilva, Executive Director of Day One, onto the show tonight to talk about the organization and its work. She's been working in the domestic violence field throughout her career and has been the executive director of Day One since its inception. Stephanie, welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm really proud to be here. First, for our listeners, talk a little about Day One and the work that you do. What is Day One? Sure. Day One is a New York-based nonprofit organization that puts its full resources towards the issue of building healthy relationships among young people 24 years of age and under. Uh, you, uh, before I uh, go further, I just want to remind our listeners, you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Meant to do that a moment ago. Sorry, Stephanie. How did you, how did you get involved in day one, and why is this work important to you? So uh, I was trained as an attorney, and my uh, first job was doing domestic violence in uh, domestic violence representation in actually the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. And uh, that, that's a community that is particularly isolated from uh, general ed support services and experiences a great deal of domestic violence as a result, as any isolated community, and I would include teens in that category as well, um, does. So if folks had made it out to seek help from the legal services office in Brooklyn that I was connected to, that really meant that they had gone through a tremendous amount of abuse and also exhausted resources inside their community before they sought help. So years later, when the opportunity came up to be involved uh, and focus on youth, it felt really exciting because um, as an attorney, you really come in after the fact, and this was a chance to do some preventive work as well. How pervasive is a problem uh, of teen dating violence and abuse? Because, you know, when you you think of domestic abuse, I think my mind immediately goes to adults. Do people Mm -hmm. think about this when it comes to teens? Yeah, I will say it's a particular challenge that everyone thinks of adults, including young people themselves. So uh, the... The fact is that young people between 16 and 24 experience more domestic violence than any other age group. So one in three youth nationwide experiences abuse in a dating relationship. One in five experience physical or sexual assault. The difference between those two numbers being that wanting the first includes, uh, the higher number includes verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and technological abuse, which is terribly common within this age group. And you knew up my mind... I was going to go there because of the uh, increase in technology and bullying online. And that's, you know, I thought technology was being employed a lot more when it came to this. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, it's true. You see a lot of um, everything from invasions of privacy to stalking to harassment, um, revenge porn or non-consensual pornography, which New York City and New York State have just recently legislated 
on and um, other issues that are coming up um, because really for young people, their social circle can be near entirely online. And so when abuse is happening in that context, it can be overwhelming. It can feel like there's nowhere to go. There's no escape. And all of your community is in the same place. So if harm is being done there, um, there seems to be nowhere uh, you can go for safety. And I had read this weekend in preparing for the show that it's often true that many teens don't report these types of unhealthy behaviors because they're afraid to tell family and friends. Well, because young people aren't in the same way that you and I uh, as adults may not be aware or your reader, your listeners may not be aware that um, young people are experiencing more abuse than any other age group. So if young people don't know and the adults around them, the influencers, the teachers, their parents don't know, then there's no reason that they have any resources. So they have no cause to come forward. There's no poster on the wall in school in most cases. So that is exacerbated if you are part of a community that has experienced harm from law enforcement. So communities of color, LGBTQ youth may be less likely to seek help from police um, or institutional systems, even teachers, where they are actually in a totally age-appropriate way, suspicious of authority. Uh, so there are reasons that young people, uh, they go to their friends for, for support, and honestly, their peers often have the same amount of information that they do. And why, why is it important to address dating abuse among young people as its own issue within the larger context of domestic violence? So there's a lot of overlap in what young people experience, um, as there is with um, adults who are experiencing domestic violence. And on the other hand, there can be huge differences. So it can be, as I said, they're, they're happening more frequently. So they can be experiencing the same things that might be physical threats, physical harm, sexual assault. Uh, they can also be experiencing, as I said, a lot of technology abuse. And it becomes important because their community, their surroundings are different than another age group. So groups like day one are particularly important because we specialize in how would you help somebody who is in a school setting. So if you share a history class with a person who's causing you harm, if you're on the same college campus, if you live in the same um, housing unit or neighborhood and so on, and young people are, you can imagine, more restricted in their mobility than adults um, in most cases. So and a, uh, an expert provider like day one is going to come to the table with an understanding that uh, of how you would support a young, peop- a young person in the court system, for instance, whereas another provider might say, oh, you're under 18, you're not allowed to go to court on your own, which is not true. Um, or they may uh, say, well, let's just get you off all that pesky social media because that's where you're being threatened. Um, and that's really like telling a young person, like, we're just going to you in a vault where you can't communicate with anyone. And that's not realistic either. So day one comes to the table with a real respect and understanding of the realities of young people and young people who are experiencing harm and an understanding of the systems that can respond to that. So there might be a school safety transfer, for instance, to move you to another high school if you're in a public school. So things like that can be um, specialized information that not every provider that assists adult survivors of domestic violence is aware of. So uh, when it comes to legislation or policies, what are the type of actions that you want to see to support these efforts to combat uh, teen violence and abuse? Well, I think overall, one of the particularly important things would be to be mindful of young survivors themselves. 
So even because the awareness is so low, there's a risk when folks are looking at legislation and passing bills where the experience of teenagers isn't taken into account. So that really comes up, for instance, with revenge porn, um, where you have legislation that's looking at non-consensual pornography um, and the distribution of intimate images without permission. But honestly, these days for young people, that's really age-appropriate behavior. Um, we may be worried about it. We may not think that's safe. We may worry about your future and so on and whether you're going to get a job and all those things. But that is really age-appropriate behavior. It's the writing on the bathroom wall of 50 years ago. So if we don't acknowledge the realities of youth when we're passing bills and we're looking at uh, what legislation can support survivors, then we're really just creating more harm um, than good because the, 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 the relief that's available to young people is going to be different. And we want to make sure that we're acknowledging the realities of the youth, um, the, the youth existence. The other major area that we're looking at is mandating um, healthy relationships, education, and schools. Mm-hmm. So kindergarten through 12th grade, we want to see a requirement that youth across New York State are getting age-appropriate information about sex, about healthy relationships, about technology abuse, about all of these issues. And that may mean when you're in second grade, you're learning about how to be a good friend to somebody. And then when you're 15 years old, you're learning about what uh, what safe uh, what safe practices you want to engage in to have a respectful and, and healthy relationship. And, and that's going to be... Yeah, oh, and there had been a bill, a measure in the New York State legislature uh, that I believe Kathy Nolan had championed, uh, did not make it out of the last session. But uh, is there hope that this might come up again during this session this, or this year? There is always very high hope. <laughs> um, I think this is critically important. We are spending so many resources to support people who are experiencing harm. We're in a time period right now where so many people are looking at this issue more carefully. We have cases like uh, about Harvey Weinstein splashed all over the news. We have the Me Too movement that's drawn so much more attention to these issues, and that's terrific, but we could be getting ahead of the problem. We could be delivering education in the youngest age groups that's going to interrupt these cycles where you're going to also wrap in the resulting effects that are things like bullying or stranger sexual assault or, again, even workplace harassment because you're going to bring up young people with the capacity and the language to talk about boundaries, to talk about consent, to talk about the things that are going to deliver them into healthy and respectful relationships later. And we've got just about a minute or two left. And for our listeners who might have a teenager in their life and are listening to this interview, what you know, what advice or, or recommendations do you have for them if this is something that they might be thinking about? Could my child be involved in this? Mm-hmm. So what I would say to the parents of teenagers is that I am hopeful and optimistic that you have been building trust with the young person in your life and the the youth in your household for years and years and years so that when your child comes forward and says, I need support on something, um, first of all, they are going to be willing to come forward to you and you're going to trust them, believe them. You're going to listen without judgment. You're going to acknowledge that... Um, you may be concerned for their welfare, but you also are going to be a support in any way you can. Uh, I would ask parents to not minimize the risk that young people are facing because they could be facing extreme risk. And it's easy for us as adults to look at 
youth and think, oh, you know, you'll find something else. You can end this relationship easily. But I think we often forget how powerful those first relationships are, how quickly and easily it is to fall in love. So I would ask parents to be mindful of that reality and listen without judgment and then provide support. If your child has broken a rule and got hurt while they were, you know, sneaking out late or spending time with someone you didn't want them with, um, let's focus on the risk that they might be facing now as opposed to the fact that they might have broken a rule. And there's a lot of ways that, yeah, parents can get ahead of this. And how can people learn more as we close? How can people learn more about Day One and your work and get involved? So Day One's website is www.day1ny.org, all spelled out in letters. And uh, there's information there if you're experiencing abuse in a relationship, if you're not sure, if you're concerned you're causing harm in a relationship. There's information about requesting workshops. Uh, for youth in schools or trainings for adults. We do trainings for teachers, law enforcement, ACS workers, etc. And there's other information about joining our Young Professionals Board or volunteering. We take interns of all ages. Um, so there's a lot of different ways where folks can also um, get, uh, get volunteer time in if they'd like that or also financially support the organization. Stephanie Nilva, Executive Director of Day One, thank you so much for joining me here on this important issue on WBAI tonight. Thank you so much, Jeff, and happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. You too. So earlier in the show, I did talk uh, at the top of the show about the status of the coronavirus in which uh, more than 800 people have now died in China, making this epidemic worse than the SARS epidemic of 2002-2003. Here in New York City, I've had guests on talking about all the precautionary measures that have been taken, the preparedness measures by the the New York City Department of Health. And I had uh, New York City Council Member Margaret Chin on talking about how at that point she was seeing that there might have been fewer people patronizing some of the restaurants, but for the most part, she, you know, there was not the uh, concern uh, on the streets that she, you know, worried about. But I wanted to invite on uh, the executive director of the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce, John Cho, also to talk about what the scene has been in Flushing and what the impact has been on business right now. So, John, welcome to WBAI. Thank you very much, Chef. I really appreciate it. So can you talk a little about how the coronavirus has been impacting businesses in the area that you represent? Yes, there's been a significant downturn in the number of visitors to our community. If you go to some of the local businesses, especially the restaurants and the food courts, you'll see that some of these are very deserted. Um, Very few people are coming out to eat and enjoy all the great things that Flushing has to offer. And what's interesting is, you know, I've read some of the stories in which people have had irrational, you know, irrational fears. We've not, I mean, there have been some cases where people have been suspected to have coronavirus here in New York City. However, we're not seeing anything comparable to what we've seen happen in China. But some experts are saying it's a natural reaction to try to distance yourself from what you perceive as a cause of illness. So how do you counter that perception to encourage people and get them to go out and patronize businesses? Yes, and as you have pointed out, there have been no positive identification of any person with this virus in Flushing, Queens, or even New York State. And so... 
while we should take this disease seriously and keep an eye out on the latest updates from our medical authorities, we need to continue our lives. We need to continue supporting our community and coming out to the local businesses. Sorry about that, John. Just a technical issue. You can keep going. <laughs> sure. Sorry. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, neighbors like uh, Flushing, Queens, were one of the few neighborhoods in the city that continued to have economic activity, create jobs, and generate tax revenue when uh, Wall Street and the big real estate and banking firms were failing during the last recession. And so uh, from a policy perspective, it's really important for uh, everyone from the mayor and the governor down to really find ways to support and assist this um, neighborhood. Um, I would even uh, characterize this as a, uh, a disaster uh, and really um, ask that government authorities really uh, consider sending in a team of people from the different agencies, including, you know, the Department of Small Business Services and NYC and company to jumpstart visitors and tourism uh, campaigns to promote neighbors like Flushing, especially during this time, because, you know, retail throughout the, the region has been down. Uh, our businesses have been suffering for more than a year, and many of them um, have even gone out of business. You see vacant storefronts for the first time in downtown Flushing. And so this latest uh, panic over a disease that hasn't even reached a neighborhood has really uh, crippled and may actually um, damage uh, severely many of the uh, unique businesses like restaurants that uh, Flushing's famous for. Uh, you know, this time is the Lunar New Year celebration. It's actually the busy, busiest, supposedly the, the busiest shopping season of the year. And many of these businesses depend on this time to make up for losses throughout the year. And so if you're seeing no one coming into these restaurants and businesses, uh, I, as a chamber representative, someone who cares about the local businesses, is very concerned about the future of viability, economic viability of this neighborhood. And I know you've talked about the role that government should play. Are you all, are you hearing specific anecdotally, are you hearing that specific businesses are on the verge of closing now? This has been going on for several weeks now, and as the crisis is escalating overseas, are you hearing more from them that they're just not seeing business anymore and might have to shut their doors? Yes, I am hearing directly from business owners that they may have to close their doors. And actually, if you visit uh, the, the food courts, I went to the one on Main Street near the Hong Kong supermarket, uh, some of the stores have already closed. And so in some ways, this is uh, the canary in, in the coal mine mm -hmm. where, you know, when, when these stalls and these uh, vendors start closing, um, the restaurants and the larger businesses are not too far behind. And as far as SBS, are you hearing from businesses that they feel they are not being heard, that there is not enough support coming from the city government right now to help them? The largest issue in Queens and Flushing specifically is that it's an immigrant-heavy uh, population. So many of the businesses, the immigrant entrepreneurs, don't even know about some of these uh, city agencies that are supposed to be helping local businesses. And so I think the first step is just to get the word out that uh, resources and help uh, is available and that there are agencies specifically designed to help uh, small businesses. Uh, we work directly with SBS, but, uh, you know, it's hard for us to do 
um, much more than, you know, have news conferences and uh, get the word out uh, going door to door. I think, you know, it's really incumbent on uh, everyone from uh, the mayor on down uh, at City Hall to really make a bigger effort, a bigger push to get um, SBS and ADC and uh, NYC and company, all these economic development agencies out to our community and really have a summit, get the elected officials involved, the business owners, and figure out what are the not only the long-term challenges, but you know what's going on short-term with this virus and this panic. So, John, we just have a brief uh, amount of time left. Can you just tell our listeners how they could find out more about the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce? And if they want to get involved, if someone wants to be able to show their support for your organization to help bring business back, uh, what they could do? Sure. Um, the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce can be reached at flushingchamber.nyc. All of our contact information is there. You can reach me uh, at our office Monday to Friday, 10, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, we'd be happy to meet with you. Um, we have a lot of resources here that could be utilized by people um, who have uh, networks and groups, uh, not only on social media, but want to come in and visit and support the local businesses uh, we're preparing to uh, jumpstart a lot of the activities that I think uh, would bring a lot of visitors. And so we do need support and people to participate. John Cho, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI tonight. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. So we've just got a few minutes left, and I again want to thank our listeners for tuning in to listen to the show, but not even just listening to City Watch. But to tuning into WBAI because we mean something to you, because you want to listen to diver, a diverse range of programming. You want to be able to, you know, get the news or to hear a wonderful interview by Leonard Lopate or to listen to Marisol, whose show precedes me on Sundays because it's just such beautiful music and she has such wonderful artists on. There's something for everyone here. But what is incredibly special about our station, and we've been here for 60 years, is that we're non-commercial and we're non-corporate. You're not being flooded with commercials for Coca-Cola or Apple computers or Microsoft or anything like that. And yeah, you are hearing our public service announcements and you're hearing what we call our carts where we're talking about our shows and encouraging you to listen. But you're not being sold, you know, a car or, or a liquor or a product. The product really is the quality of the programming here. And the way if WBAI has meant something to you over the years. If, if you're new or if you are a longtime listener and you've not had a chance to be able to show your support to keep us on the air because that's what keeps us going, just make a contribution by becoming a BAI buddy. I'm trying to just get a few BAI buddies in the name of this show, City Watch. If I could get three over the course of this month, that would be fantastic. And what you do is you just have to pledge at 516-620-3602, or you go online to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, and you could sign up to become a BAI buddy where you give a regular contribution every month, starting at, say, $10. 20 would be fantastic, but if you can give $10 a month, that's 120 over the course of the year. But by becoming a BAI buddy, one of the perks that I actually love, given that the, uh, the bag, the nickel bag, uh, legislation is going into effect in just a few weeks is you're going to get a wonderful WBAI tote bag. And so that's why if 
multiple members of your family become BAI buddies. You get several bags to be able to put in all your groceries or not, and you'll make up for it over the course of the year, depending on how often you go shopping. Uh, these bags are just fantastic, and you're able to also, and this is why I love it, I'm able to show my WBAI pride when I bring the bag out so people know that I'm a listener. And what was fantastic is that when we were off the year off the, uh, for a while in October and I used the bag, people were coming up to me to ask if I knew people at BAI and, or just even to talk about BAI. So it was amazing in New York City to see how many people were dedicated, loyal listeners and wanted our local programming to come back when we were off for that month. But that same month, we lost a considerable amount of revenue because we were in our fundraising drive and we lost some of our BAI buddies. So we're trying to get them back. So I'm asking you if you're home tonight, before you turn on the TV to watch the Oscars, if that's what you're going to watch tonight, just take a few moments and become a BAI buddy. You could just do it. There's easy ways to do it. You can pledge at 516-620-3602. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give to the number two WBAI.org. Do it in the name of the show, City Watch. I'm hoping to get three BAI buddies this month. Anyway, I really want to thank you for tuning in tonight. My guests, Stephanie Nilva, Executive Director of Day One, John Cho, who you just heard from the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce, and also Eduardo Castell from the Moram Group. I really appreciate them giving their insights today, some important topics that we talked about. I'll be back this Thursday with Driving Forces at 5 p.m. talking about the latest in national politics. I am certain we're going to be talking about the New Hampshire primary and what that means going forward. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to programs and then archives. The show's going to be up and running within the next hour. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jack Heights, J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S. And you can also find City Watch, WBAI on Twitter as well and on Facebook. Again, thank you for tuning in and please stay with us because coming up next is the golden age of radio with Max Schmidt.